Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, Ocean View. We begin a new series this uh, morning for the month of February. We're going to spend three weeks looking at one chapter of the Bible, basically one story. Before we do, I just want to remind you again of the prayer room. Uh, prayer room started this morning. It's uh, just down the hall, just beside the secretary's office there. And uh, we encourage you, and you know, as you come in, come in that door, pop in the prayer room from 9 till 10, and pray for the service. Pray for uh, people. There's a board there with uh, prayer requests on. Just drop in, pray for five minutes with the people there, and then come in, get settled, whatever. But uh, we need to be praying. We need to be praying for our community, praying for our church, praying for the world. Uh, just remind you to be praying for Turkey, a big earthquake in Turkey. Many thousands are killed and people displaced, so that is on our prayer mind as well this morning. Disasters, things like that. We're going to talk about that this morning. One of the most well-known of the Old Testament accounts is the story that we're going to look at. And uh, you can see faith lessons at the Red Sea. Red shirt this morning because of the Red Sea. And Valentine's Day, my wife said. So she's just reminding me. Each week we're going to seek to glean one lesson that we can apply to our lives today. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he still comes alongside us as he did all those years ago. We've all experienced problems in our lives. Although I'm sure to different degrees, we could probably tell all kinds of stories when you actually start thinking, what were some of the stories that would be like this? There are trials that we face sometimes that seem insurmountable. There's no way out. In fact, sometimes it seems like there's no chance of a good outcome. Now, we have a number of sayings in English uh, to describe that situation. Sometimes you have to choose between the lesser of two evils. Situations come, it's like, this is bad, this is bad. Well, which is the least bad? Or um, sometimes we use another expression, between a rock and a hard place. You know, I'm stuck between a rock and a... Well, it's the same, it's two bad things. Another of these sayings is, I'm caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. Now, that seems kind of strange. We're going, like, where did that come from? Well, it has existed since the 1600s, and we have the sailing ship. Because it has to do with sailing. The expression doesn't have to do with the devil of the Bible. It has to do with a seam around the hull of the, around the waterline. It was called the devil. And uh, sailors would attempt to cock that seam. So you have this cotton stuff, uh, oakum, and you pound it into any of the cracks that are on where the waters, where the, the boat, the, they join together. And uh, the sailor would be in serious danger of falling into the water. And so he was caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. The next picture shows you them cocking it there. If it was stormy or rough, then it still had to be done. So in other words, the sailor faced with two awful choices. Risk his life to repair the ship or risk the entire ship by not repairing the seam. So if you say you're between the devil and the deep blue sea, you mean you're in a difficult situation where you have to choose between two equally unpleasant courses of action. 
In our Old Testament story that's found in the book of Exodus, we find God's people facing that dilemma. We're going to check out Exodus. That's the second book of the Bible. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there or on your phones. We're going to look at the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14 this morning. Basically, we're going to spend time in chapter 14 over the next three weeks. We're going to focus over on one story. It's the same story, but we're going to look at it from different perspectives, and we want to glean some lessons that are going to apply in our life. Now, a picture coming on the screen. Who is this? Interesting. Moses or Charlton Heston? I I got both of them, and that's good. This is Charlton Heston portraying Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. It's a scene from the 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments, by Cecil B. DeMille. It was an epic three-and-a-half-hour film, it, was one of the, it is the most costly and highest grossing uh, film when you adjust it for inflation and our dollar values today. There were huge sets, some new technology, hundreds of extras. They didn't use CGI for it. They had actual people. There are people in it, Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner, Edward G. Robinson, Vincent Price, and baby Moses was actually played by Charlton Heston's son, Frank Heston. Just thought you'd like to know that. Now, I used to enjoy watching this film. I don't anymore. (laughs) I see it, and it just feels weird. Um, There's overacting, bad dialogue. Um, I'm going to show you a clip. Look at the three girls. It's just just terrible. Anyways, I'm sure the real event in Moses' day was much better than this Hollywood was able to produce, but you're going to get the picture. So just watch this clip of the parting of the Red Sea.
Yeah. I pity the poor duck that got squished by the... It's, it's a good movie anyways, but anyways, just you watch it now and you're going, ah, I think we've made it a little different nowadays. Pastor Gordon Mor uh, Robert Morgan, Morgan was, fine, was flying from Athens to New York, and there was a problem. Someone he loved was in trouble, and it reduced him to a bundle of nerves. As the long Atlantic flight started, he asked God for help. And that day's Bible reading was Exodus 14, so he started writing, and ten ideas unfolded, ten ways of handling dilemmas and discouragements. And so he came together, so he wrote this little book called Red Sea Rules, and it's a biblical method to process difficulties by faith. In the light of God's almighty presence, his almighty providence, his promises, and his power, it's a divine protocol for handling life when we find ourselves caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. So let's bring ourselves up to speed on the developments in Exodus chapter 14. The book of, Ex of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, tells us the story of beginnings. It's the beginnings of the Jewish people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are the first three generations of a family. They started out in the land of Canaan, Israel. And the descendants of Jacob, in a surprising move, ended up in Egypt, 70 people. Now, generations pass, and we begin to read the book of Exodus. It's 430 years after Jacob and Joseph. The Hebrew people are now a large number, probably about 2 million. They've ceased to be visitors. It's like they came for Christmas but stayed for New Year's and then never went home. They're now a slave population. They are the labor force for an empire. So they begin to pray and plead with God, who they don't really know very much about, to set them free. And God answers with a person, Moses. The book of Exodus details this struggle and this journey. And finally, the king, the pharaoh, is forced to let the people leave after the night that we know of as Passover. It's in the spring, March, April, somewhere in that time. And we're going to pick up the story of the Exodus, the way out in Greek is the word Exodus is Greek for the way out. Chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though they, that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. So instead of going north, the normal trade route, it would be guarded by Pharaoh's soldiers, so they go south into the desert, less traveled. He didn't want them to face war at this early stage. They were a slave population. They weren't trained for war. It took 40 years and some small battles before they were ready for Joshua chapter 5. We continue to read. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. The Israelites followed a pillar of cloud and a fire as carefully as possible. They were thrilled with their new freedom. They were excited about the future. God was leading them into a new life, a better life, and there was excitement. There was freedom. They were ready to follow God's leading. God is in control. God reigns. And then their GPS, God's positioning system, 
leads them to turn back and camp on the beach. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They're to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. And as we're going to find out, it's not a very good position. The clouds and the fire had led them deliberately into a dead end. Not a through road. There were hostile hills on each side. They were at the edge of the sea. It was too deep to be forded. There was too wide to be crossed. There's no way around, no way back. They're trapped there. Not only is the ocean in front of them, the hills are surrounding them, and there's only a, wa a road to walk on. They can't disperse. Two million people. It's a lot of people. To top it all off, Pharaoh regrets that he, forced to, he was forced to let the whole of his labor force to leave. He wants them back. He mobilizes his special forces and goes after the departing people. So here we have the title today of our message. But God was driving. God was driving. There's an ocean in front of them. There's an angry army behind them, and they're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. But the real problem we have here is God was driving. It's God who directed them to this very place. The pillar of cloud and of fire led them to this place. God, what are you thinking? You might have it the same way. Maybe in your past you've heard you've had this happen. Or maybe in the future it's going to happen. The ringing of a phone. A notice on your email a knock on the door, and suddenly you find yourself in the same position, and it can send you into a sea of worry. Arthur Roche says, the trickle of fear that meanders through the mind, cutting a channel into which all other thought flow, worry. John Rice, worry is putting question marks where God has put periods. Fulton Sheen says, a form of atheism for it betrays a lack of faith and trust in God. Yet worry can seem as much a part of us as breathing. How can you not worry when your outflow exceeds your income and creditors are calling? How can you not worry when your retirement portfolio is collapsing? When your loved one is diagnosed with cancer? When your job is insecure? When your job is terminated? When your child is troubled? When your child is in trouble? When your safety is threatened, the Red Sea faces you. The desert and the mountains surround you. The soldiers of Egypt are rushing towards you with drawn swords. Do you identify with what's happening here? How does Exodus 14 help? What lesson can we learn down at the Red Sea? I think our first lesson is this. Realize that God means for you to be where you are. Often we look at life and we go, why am I here? What did I do wrong? What? Realize God means for you to be where you are. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They're in encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. God is responsible for leading them into this peril. Occasionally God does the same with us. Testing our faith, leading us into hardship, teaching us wisdom, showing us his ways. And we will respond with a surge of panic, a sense of alarm. But yes, 
camped there, right here in that impossible place. And this is where we have to recall the deeper secret. When you're in a difficult place, realize that God either placed you there or allowed you to be there for reasons perhaps known only to himself. But also understand this, the same God who led you in will lead you out. Our whole perspective changes. It's a hard place, yes, but realize God placed us here. God allowed us to be here. And if he allowed us to be in this place, he will provide a way out. Now, we want to flesh that out a little bit because it's hard to digest. It's hard to really say, God put me here. It takes a lot of faith to say, but I trust that he will lead me out. Let's look at some biblical examples of others in the same situation. Hagar was a single mom and was forced into the desert with her boy to die of thirst. Joseph was seized, stripped, sold as a slave, and imprisoned in Egypt. Moses was caught between the splendors of Egyptian royalty and the thankless affliction with God's people. David was being anointed as a king by Samuel, but being pursued by Israelite troops. Hezekiah was seeking revival in the land, but he was trapped by the most powerful army on earth, bent on annihilating his people. And in the New Testament, the disciples, they sailed on Galilee at Jesus' command, only to face a terror-filled night filled with storms and waves. Jesus himself, fulfilling the Father's will, was nailed to wood and left to hang by his hands until dead. The apostles preached this crucified one, and they were whipped and beaten. The leader of the apostles, uh, Peter, he says later, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Christians, don't be surprised. Even when we're seeking to do God's will, we may find ourselves trapped in a dead end. It might be painful, could be frightening, may be difficult, and there may be impossible situations. Life is hard. We have a determined enemy, especially for followers of Jesus. But it is Jesus who said, in this world, you will have trouble. It's going to happen. I'm not taking you out of it. God has put us in a difficult place, or he has allowed us to be there for reasons only he knows. There are no mistakes, but as we continue to read in John 16, Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus does all things well. He is God, he is in control, and our God reigns. A.W. Tozer was a uh, minister with the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, a pastor, a writer, and he says these words, To the child of God there is no such thing as an accident. He travels an appointed way. Accidents may indeed appear to befall him and misfortunes stalk his way. But these evils will be so in appearance only and will seem evils only because we cannot read the secret script of God's hidden providence. Another pastor and writer, um, remember reading a number of his books in uh, seminary, Andrew Murray. He was uh, part of the Reformed Church of South Africa. 
He said, let me say, I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. Psalm 37 says, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Now, you might be thinking as we kind of go into, you know, we're at a dead end, God put me here, but what if it's my fault? What if it's my fault? Is God still leading? You know, we sometimes cause our own pain. We do stupid things. Our selfishness can lead us into a dead end. Our stupidity moves our life into conflict and trials. And we look at others often and we never look at ourselves. What if it's really my fault that I find myself between the devil and the deep blue sea? Maybe it's not God's leading. When things in life don't go as planned, who's to blame? Sometimes we blame others, and sometimes it's warranted, but it's really not. Sometimes we blame ourselves, and it is warranted. Sometimes it is our fault. We didn't show up, we didn't keep our promise, we didn't put in the effort that was required. But sometimes it's not our fault, and we blame ourselves anyways. I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable enough, I'm not hardworking enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not forceful enough, I'm not gentle enough. It must be my fault. You know, it's funny how even when we're not to blame, we often still like to make it our fault. If I had just, if I could only, if I were more, if I were less... The thing about blame is it lets us feel like we're in control. If it's my fault, I can fix it, change it, control it, prevent it from happening again the next time. If it is my fault, it's not random, arbitrary, and out of my control. Sometimes we can waste a lot of effort trying to change things to avoid pain. And sometimes it's no one's fault. It's just the truth. In Genesis, God says, And now do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling, selling me here. This is Joseph speaking. Joseph at the end of the chapters when, uh, when his brothers are coming and the brothers are kind of, oh no, what did we do? Joseph says, don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. It was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. God's forgiveness allows self-forgiveness. God has forgiven us. We don't need to be angry with ourselves. We don't need to hate ourselves. God will use it all for good. Sincere repentance roots us back into God's will. Confession puts us back on Christ's path. Our hearts are cleansed. We have fellowship with God is restored. Consequences may linger, but God will somehow use it for good. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Genuine confession and repentance Start wherever you are with lesson one. Remember that God in his overruling providence has allowed you to be where you are at this moment. J.I. Packer, James Inno Packer, was an English-born Canadian evangelical theologian, cleric, writer. 
He was in the Anglican tradition and the Calvinist tradition, but uh, he was a professor of theology at Regent College. We used a number of his books in uh, Bible school. He said, our God is a God who not merely restores, but takes up our mistakes and follies into his plan for us and brings good out of them. We can trust God. He can still make a way. So as we embark on this journey of life, as we go through life, it's important for us to take an honest look at where we currently are. Are we facing challenges in our life? Are you facing challenges? What is your Red Sea challenge at the moment? Maybe you're kind of going, oh man, I'm in one of those places right now. The devil in the deep blue sea. Or I remember being in one. Or, oh man, I can see one looming. So are we facing challenges in life? Family, work, school, health, where we live, finances? What specifically is the challenge that you're facing? Now I ask, how am I responding to that challenge? You're at the Red Sea. The ocean is in front of you. The armies of the enemy are behind you. How do you respond? Well, there are two ways to respond. I think our first response is usually fear, worry, panic. Like the people of Israel, just getting to know their God, the great I Am, they panicked. They said to Moses, was it because there's no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. That could be one of our responses. Oh, if only we hadn't done this. If only this hadn't happened. But there is another way to respond. Moses had been on the mountain. He had met God. He was learning to trust, to rest in God's providence, to realize that God means for you to be where you are. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The, light, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be Still, we have a choice. Be like the people. Be like Moses. The people were caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, and God was driving. You're going to face that same thing in your life probably many times. And you need to realize first that God means for you to be where you are. But be encouraged, the same God who led you in will lead you out. God deliberately orchestrated the Exodus events. It was an occasion for demonstrating the power that he wields over both enemies and the elements. In Exodus 14, God says, But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Our problems will also be an occasion for God to work wonders. And it's echoed many times through the scriptures. God took an impossible situation, flipped it around, and worked it out for his honor. The parting of the Red Sea shows God getting the glory. His enemies are defeated, his children are delivered, his name is exalted, and his exploits are remembered. His praises are sounded. God turns difficulties into deliverance. God turns problems into praise. 
He gives beauty for ashes and an attitude of worship for the spirit of heaviness. He will glorify his name in the lives of his children. Whatever their afflictions, he will gain honor for himself over our adverse situations. Be more concerned for God's glory than your relief. Now maybe you're not a child of God. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the creator of the universe. And he can miraculously part your Red Sea. Yes, you will find yourselves on the beach in your journey of freedom. Yes, it could be more familiar in Egypt, but you will still be a slave to the oppressor. God is offering a freedom, but there is a cost to that freedom. It costs the Son of God his life to buy your freedom from sin, from Satan, from the enemy. You can become one of God's children, part of his family, by simply surrendering your life to follow Jesus. Your prayer would be, Lord, I'm on the beach. My life is pressing on me. I want to trust you, surrender to you. I'm sorry for my wandering away. Thank you for buying me back. Please come into my life and let your Holy Spirit be the cloud and the fire that guide my life. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask uh, Dan to come and to pray the pastoral prayer for us this morning.